save the king! Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the King. I'm your host, Anne Gripper, and I'm delighted to be joined by a new guest today. Big welcome to the writer, broadcaster and podcaster, Ian Dale. He wrote The Prime Ministers, he wrote The Presidents, and now he's written Kings and Queens. So we had to have him on the show. Ian, welcome. Great to have you with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I should make clear I edited those books, not actually wrote all of them, although I have written chapters in them. Curated and edited. Curated, yeah. An excellent weighty it's probably two inches thick this book I mean there's a lot of people who have um who have sat on the throne and you include even some people who not strictly kings or queens or never even came close really but are very much part of that royal lineage and history and we'll we'll come to that but what made you yeah what made you want to write this one because royals is you know you confess is not your sort of specific area of expertise well Back in 2020, I edited a book called The Prime Ministers, 300 Years of Political History. And the reason I did that was because it was the three in April 2021, it would be the 300th anniversary of Sir Robert Walpole coming to power. And he was all seen as Britain's first prime minister. And we all love an anniversary, don't we? So I thought I, I couldn't believe that nobody had done this book already. So I started out by recruiting a load of academics, historians, politicians, journalists to write each chapter, because there's no way that I could have written 55 chapters and been an expert on every single one. Um, And that did really, really well in terms of sales. So the publishers said, well, what would you like to do next? So I decided to do US presidents. That went well, similar format. And then they said, OK, what would you like to do next? So I thought, well, what kings and queens. But I assumed that this had been done before. And in some ways it has. But in in, in a, I mean, Andrew Jimson did a book uh, going back to 1066, doing very short chapters on each monarch. Um, but I thought, well, I'll do the same kind of style. It's very non-academic. I mean, it's meant for the general reader. Um, it's also meant for obviously royal enthusiasts, just as the presidents and prime ministers were meant for political enthusiasts. Um, but I, I basically banned footnotes. I did not want it to be intimidating. Obviously, the size of it is quite intimidating. But it's the kind of book where I doubt whether people start with Alfred the Great and then read sort of through to King Charles III. I suspect people will dip in and out. Um, it's kind of an ultimate loo book, but it's a bit big for a loo book, if you see what I mean. <laughs> so, um, so I then went about recruiting 64 different people to write e- about each monarch. And you're right, I did, I when I announced I was doing this on Twitter, I then was assailed by people saying, well, I hope you're going to include Matilda. I hope you're going to include King Louis, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd never, well, certainly I had heard of Matilda, but I hadn't heard of King Louis. And then there's King Edgar II and obviously Lady Jane Grey, who, I mean, you can debate whether she should be in in the list of uh, monarchs, I suppose. And in the end, I thought, well, why not include them? They they actually did each hold the crown for a very short time, even if they were never crowned. So that's the reason I put them in. I'm sure historical purists will be appalled that I've included them. And even more appalled that I included Oliver Cromwell and his son Richard. But then, but I, the reason I did that was obviously they weren't monarchs, although Oliver Cromwell was offered the crown and turned it down. 
But it would, it's a bit odd if you're doing a book from 871 to 2023 to have an 11 year gap in, in the 1650s. Uh, so I thought, I don't know an awful lot about Oliver Cromwell, and I think I'm reasonably well informed. So let's put him in, because if I don't know a lot, I'm sure other people wouldn't either. So it, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a, it's not your traditional royal list in a way, because I think we're always taught that history begins in 1066. Well, it doesn't. Um, somebody said, well, are you going to include the Anglo-Saxon monarchs? And I looked at the list and I thought, well, uh, I could in terms of the, it, it would obviously make the book bigger, but not not overwhelmingly bigger. And there were quite a few of those monarchs that not only could I not pronounce, I'd never heard of. So, again, I thought, well, obviously, let's put them in. But that, that was a bit of a, a problem because there are one or two of them that. Frankly, there is there is no information on at all. Um, my former LBC colleague, Matt Stadlin, he drew the short straw and wrote about King Elfwid, who was the uh, third monarch, so the, the second one after Alfred. And I asked him to write 1,500 words. And, I mean, he was only basically in power for a very short time. And then he phoned me up near, quite near the deadline and said, I can't write more than 500 words because there is nothing to be written. There are no primary sources. I've been to the British Library. I spent two days in the British Library trying to find stuff, and there just isn't anything. I said, oh, of course there is. So I, I then started to look myself. Because there's always, when you do a book like this, there's always one of the authors that lets you down in some way. Either they don't deliver on time or they write something that just isn't right for the book. So I thought, well, this is going to be that one, so I'll have to rescue it myself. But I couldn't find anything either. So um, the, the Elfwood chapter is the shortest in the book. But it was really important to include these Anglo-Saxon monarchs because what I didn't realise was a lot of them did introduce laws uh, or um, did different things, which still affect the way our system works today. Uh, and it, there's a lot of themes that go through the book. And one of them is the theme of, well, sort of how did Parliament develop? And in a sense, we've now, I don't really buy this concept that we have a constitutional monarchy. I think we have a parliamentary monarchy where through the Act of Settlement in 1701, um, that that effectively gave Parliament the right to choose who the monarch was. I mean, they always kind of had that fact, but it enshrined it in law. And I mean, even now, Parliament could pass a law that says, well, um, we, we don't think King Charles is the right uh, monarch. We, we, we're going to name William the king. I mean, it's obviously never going to happen. But in theory, they have that power. And and you, you look back to the formation of the first English Parliament in the 13th century. But it goes back even further than that with the Witan. So there's all sorts of themes that come out of this book that are really relevant to modern day. I was just thinking earlier that politics has gone a bit boring here. We've not had a new prime minister for at least <laughs> at least 10 minutes. So that'd be a way to liven things back up again and uh, get them to decide who they want to have as the on the throne. I mean, the opposite of uh, of your 500 word essay and not much information is probably the Queen, whose life, you know, whose reign we have lived through um, is the only queen that you and I have known um, or the only monarch that you and I have known until last until last year. Um, you got to meet her 
which was clearly a, a memorable experience for you that you shared in the, in the forward, which was um, really lovely to hear. It'd be great to share a little of that with listeners and and anything. So Julia Langdon had wrote the essay on her for this. And did what new things came to you? You know, she's so there's been so much written and and talked about with her. We, we all feel like we know her, but actually, there's there's always something new, isn't there? There is. And I think Julia's essay is one of the most interesting in the book. And it's actually one, probably one of the most difficult to write, because, as you say, we all know a lot about the Queen because we've lived through her reign. But Julia, um, for those of your listeners who, who don't know Julia, she was actually political editor of the Daily Mirror for many years. So she's a sort of what's called a veteran political journalist. And um, she met the Queen on a number of occasions and had conversations with her. And she's effectively related quite a lot of that, which I'm sure breaks some sort of convention. Um, But her chapter is quite different to a lot of the others in the book. And I gave her a lot more latitude in terms of uh, content and style. It it is very anecdotal, but I think it's all the stronger for it. You you sort of get to know things about the Queen's personality through some of the anecdotes that she tells. So I think it's an absolutely fascinating chapter. And she's got sort of one or two bits of her own family history, which are are relevant too. So um, it's much less of a biography than than some of the other chapters. Um, You asked about when I met the Queen. This was back in, I think, 2002, but anyway, around then. And I was running a political bookshop in Westminster and a publishing company. And suddenly I get this invitation to a reception at Buckingham Palace for the book industry. So my partner and I, uh, we were literally, the shop was about 400 yards from the palace. So it wasn't a long walk to get to get there. So we turn up and there's about 800 people there in the state reception rooms. And the, the, quite a few members of the royal family were there. And we had decided before we went that we were going to meet the Queen. Now, I'm sure all 800 people there thought the same thing. But obviously, not the Queen is never going to meet every single person that's there. So we sort of wandered around for a bit. Um, and I, in the end, I decided there's no way that we're going to get to the Queen. But my partner, who is quite a shy person and would never sort of really push himself forward, he said, look, if we stand here at some point, she's got to walk past this spot. So we stood there for about 20 minutes and I was thinking, oh, let's just go home. We're, ne- we're never going to do it. We've seen what we've come to see. Um, we've been in the same room as the Queen. Isn't that enough? And my partner said, no, this is our only opportunity to meet the Queen. We'll probably never get the opportunity again. And he was right, because obviously the knighthood has never arrived. So <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, she she then came along with Prince Philip and I can't remember whether she actually came up to us or whether one of us sort of stepped forward. But we ended up having a conversation for about five minutes, which in those kind of receptions is quite a long time. And I'm quite a big person. And I kept having to sort of literally elbow people back who were trying to sort of invade the conversation. And I, I can remember, I'd always thought the Queen may be a little bit difficult to talk to. Um, that she had this reputation for sort of not having a lot of small talk, which I'm not sure was ever right because I found her absolutely engaging. Um, no no problem in finding subjects to talk about. And 
I found out that she was inveterate political gossip. She just loved hearing all the gossip from Westminster. And there was a Labour minister at the time called Geoffrey Robertson who had been involved in some sort of scandal. And she wanted to know all about that. She said, "How do you? what do you think is going to happen to Mr. Robinson, she said. And um, I, I can't remember what I said, but we had quite a protracted discussion about that, which I thought was a bit odd for the monarch to really... Be indulging in political gossip but uh she's she certainly didn't hold back and as i say i i can't honestly say how long the conversation was but it was a lot longer than i expected it to be and it wasn't one of those hello and what do you do conversations it was much deeper than that and and we we she she well she did actually ask us sort of what we did in the industry so i said well we run a bookshop in artillery row just down the road your majesty and she clearly had no clue where artillery row was and i said well, it's just by the army and navy i don't think she knew where that was either well i would imagine your partner has dined out on this with you for years and is able to say yeah. this is where we should stand but i i know the best uh, i know the best places to be you have to listen to me exactly exactly and um uh, I mean, we'd met the King once, um, the British Forces Foundation, which was, is a charity to help uh, members of the armed forces, uh, as you might imagine, uh, which is run by Jim Davidson. They did a um, charity fundraiser at Highgrove. So we got invited to that. And um, it was quite, it's quite a property, Highgrove. I don't know if, if any of your listeners have been there, but the gardens are just simply magnificent. And this was again around the same time, maybe a little bit before that. And it was in midsummer. And we arrived, uh, uh, and my partner was driving the car. <laughs> the security people assumed as my chauffeur, which did not go down well. Um, so we we then wandered around the gardens, and as we came back to the house, we we saw the doors open, and Charles and uh, Camilla and William and Harry they all came out through the door. Now, we didn't push ourselves forward at at that point, didn't think it was appropriate. But there was a sort of outside reception. There were quite a few famous people there. And Will Young, I think, had just been on, was it Pop Idol or Fame Academy? One of those. One of those. And it had just become really famous. And again, my partner, who, as I say, is a very shy person, just went up to him and said, hello, Will, I'm John Simmons. And I was standing there thinking... This person that I thought I knew, <laughs> it's not the person I thought I knew. And, um, and later on, we, we had a brief conversation with, with Charles. And then there was a sort of entertainment. Bit. They had a big marquee up. And um, Ben Elton was the compare. Now, I don't know whether this is widely known, but Charles and Camilla have an absolutely filthy sense of humour. They love really dirty jokes and I mean really dirty jokes and we were sitting at our table and Ben Elton comes on and starts his routine actually no he wasn't comparing it Jim Davidson was comparing it Ben Elton was one of the performers and he started his routine and he was swearing like a trooper and the audience didn't know whether to laugh or be embarrassed and I was sitting there sort of butt cheeks clenched thinking oh my god this is really embarrassing And then he told literally the filthiest joke I've ever heard. And I looked at Charles and Camilla and they were roaring with laughter. And bear in mind at this time, Prince Harry can only have been about, I don't know, 12, 13, 14. 
But clearly, Ben Elton knew that this sort of thing goes down really well with Charles and Camilla. So um, that that's my main memory of that night. Oh, wow. Unexpected. Um, what do you think makes a memorable monarch? Because obviously there's, as you, you, I think you said, there's some people in your book that we're very familiar with their names and a bit of their story. And there's some people who probably not even really, they're just a number, <laughs> really. What do you think makes a memorable monarch? And do you think Charles will manage to capture the imagination and capture his own place in history? I think a lot of things make a memorable monarch. I mean, it depends on which period we're talking about to some extent. I think it's a bit like memorable prime ministers. You have to be a lucky monarch or a lucky prime minister in many ways. You have to be in the right place at the right time. Now, you look at some of our prime ministers, for example, James Callaghan and Gordon Brown, who, in theory, they had all of the qualities to be really great prime ministers, but they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think when you take over from a long-serving prime minister or a long-serving monarch, somebody who's already got a, a good existing reputation, it's very difficult to make a mark. And you look at some of our memorable monarchs, they tend to be the longest-serving ones. I mean, Queen Victoria, for example. And the chapter in the book on her, I think, is fascinating because it's a really original take on her. It It, it looks at her life as a woman rather than necessarily just a monarch and that hasn't really been done before and Alex Churchill who does the History Hack podcast she wrote that chapter and I think it's what one of the best in the book um David Starkey wrote about Henry VIII as you might imagine that's his field of expertise but again he wrote a really original chapter on that and really saying well his whole life was based on the rather weird education that he had now I knew nothing about Henry VIII's education um and he's, well, it depends on your point of view. You either think of Henry VIII as one of our great monarchs or an awful monarch because he was quite despotic. Um, but I, I think a great monarch probably has to serve a reasonable length of time. I mean, we don't remember some of the ones that were only there for sort of a few years. Uh, uh, the, probably they have to have won battles. I mean, obviously that's that's only up to sort of in the 18th century. But virtually every monarch up until uh, the 18th century had basically fought a battle and their reputations were based on whether they won those battles. Um, there, there were quite a few monarchs who served for a long time who didn't really make a mark. I mean, Henry VI is the one that comes to mind, who um, I get the feeling was a little intellectually challenged uh, and he had quite a long reign but didn't really do an awful lot in it. Whereas his successor, Henry VII, I think is is one of the most fascinating ones. And Nathan Amon, who wrote that chapter, he's obviously on a mission to restore Henry VII's reputation because I think he's, I can't remember whether I left this in or, or took it out because I did ask them not to write hagiographies. But he started by saying, Henry VII was the greatest British monarch of all time. I thought, really? that That's quite a claim to make. Um, so, look, events shape our memories of public figures, whether they're monarchs, prime ministers, cabinet ministers, whatever. It depends on what they're involved in and uh, whether they ha handle events well. I think one of our greatest monarchs was George V, who was king from 1910 to 1936. He was king during the First World War. Uh, and bear in mind that a lot of European monarchies essentially ceased to exist or were greatly re reform reformed and reduced in importance over that period. And it could have gone the same way here. 
And I think because of George V, I mean, he, you could say that he saved the monarchy and Simon Heffer's chapter on him, I think is is outstanding. And it, it, it helps us maybe rethink that period of our history. And then obviously he was succeeded by Edward VIII, um, who no one would say was a, was a great monarch. And Damien Collins, a Conservative MP and historian, he's written that chapter and again, has quite an original take on Edward VIII's life. Bearing in mind that I mean that must be one of the most written about parts of our royal history, I think it's really interesting how he he he's brought him to life and and makes us maybe rethink some of our initial thoughts about Edward VIII. And the, there are some uh, royal correspondents who our listeners, I'm sure, will be familiar with their names. Camilla Tominey and Kate Mancy are among the the writers that jumped out at me. So Kate wrote about the. Um, a queen who is played by Olivia Coleman in The Favourites. Um, if you were going to get a, a film about one of these monarchs that might not have been done, was a, was the one that you were reading the essay and thinking, oh, come on, Hollywood, this one is crying out for some big screen action. I look that a lot of them, I would say. I mean, the one, let me pick out a couple of early ones. I mean, Alfred the Great, for example, Alex Burkhart, another Conservative MP, um, he, he wrote the chapter on him. Uh, we did a literary festival together in Wantage a couple of weeks ago, and um, I, I had a little panel of th- three other contributors. And I wanted Alex to do that because Alfred the Great was born in Wantage, and there's a statue of him in the market square. And um, what do we know about Alfred the Great, apart from the fact that he burnt cakes? And even that, we're not 100% sure about. But his life, I think, I mean, he, de- he lays claim to be the first real king of England, even though he wasn't king of the whole of what we now know as England. Um, led an absolutely fascinating life. And a lot of the things that he introduced, uh, as I say, said before, uh, still affect the way we live today and 1,200 years later. So I think he would be one. Um, King Canute is another one. Sue Cameron, uh, FT, former, the former FT journalist, she wrote about Canute and she kept begging me for more space because she kept saying, look, this, he's a really, really significant figure. It's not just about holding back the waves. That, that there's so much more to him than that. Uh, and again, she's written an absolutely fascinating chapter. And of course, around that time, there were lots of invasions from from the Danes, from from Scandinavia, uh, and then uh, they would be repelled, and then they would have another go. And we don't really know an awful lot about what life was like in England at that time. And I think Hollywood could probably do quite a good uh, good job on that. But in terms of more modern day monarchs. I mean, obviously, ITV did that series on Victoria, which I found both fascinating and appalling in some ways because they they played on too many stereotypes, I think. And although we did learn quite a lot about Victorian times from that, they 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 were very loose with some of the historical events that they portrayed. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I know that didn't happen, then it kind of undermines the rest of the, the whole series. But I think what these kind of dramas do is really get people more interested in history and, and royal history in particular. And I, I don't know whether ITV are going to continue that series. There's been a big gap so far, but they, they've sort of stopped it, I think, at the wrong time. Because Victoria, I think, was, I mean, just as an individual, 
was such an interesting person and the relationships that she forged with not just her household but different prime ministers were absolutely fascinating so i hope they do sort of revive it and, and take it forward but obviously they'd have to have an older victoria oh judy dench played a wonderful victoria in the film about john brown um but they'd need to have somebody else play it i'd play her i think who, who I mean, would play Alfred or Canute to give us a sense of the kind of kings or people oh that they goodness. were? Because, you know, it sounds like there's some battles and the, the the stuff that's going on around them. But in terms of who they were and how they fitted into it, who who do you have a sense oh, of? I'm terrible at questions like this. Who can I think of that could play King Alfred? Um I think in my head, I've got King Alfred a bit confused with Alfred out of Guess Who, so he's a bit ginger with sort of slightly long hair. <laughs> well, it's funny because, <laughs> do you know the first actor that, I can't, don't know what his name is, but the guy that plays uh, Daniel in Coronation Street, who's a bit ginger. So what, why did we, <laughs> why do we think of Alfred as ginger? I've, I've got no, there's no logic to that, is there? I mean, pictures were definitely black and white. <laughs> um, you you mentioned that you ended up writing about Edgar II. What was it that made you think, okay, that one I really want to write about? Because I think I think that is a name that will be unfamiliar to, well, it's certainly unfamiliar to me and to probably to many of our listeners as well. Well, I originally wanted to write about Lady Jane Grey because she's always fascinated me. And I've always thought that she was dealt with so unfairly. And who knows what kind of queen she could have been had, had she been allowed to live. But um, Alex Churchill introduced me to this whole new genre of young female royal historians. And one of, one of the criticisms I got for both the presidents and prime ministers was the gender balance in the contributors. In the prime ministers, I think there were only six women out of 55. And that wasn't because I was being sort of misogynist. It was because there just aren't a lot of female political historians or necessarily commentators. So um, for this one, it was an absolute godsend to discover all of these young royal historians, virtually all of whom were under the age of 35, and really enthusiastic to take part in this project. I mean, really enthusiastic because some what what I try to do is have a mix of I dot it with a few celebrity names, people that everybody's heard of, whether they're politicians, commentators, historians, academics. But then I've tried to also uh, have people that nobody's ever heard of, but they they just are the right fit for this particular monarch. So here, it, it was absolutely fascinating to, I mean, I was getting bids from people in the end. Um, and sort of, obviously, everyone wanted to do Victoria, everyone wanted to do sort of the famous ones. But obviously, I had to fill all 64 slots. So I think Nicola Tallis did Jane, Jane Grace. She was literally begging to do it. So I thought, okay, well, should I, I'll, I'll do another one. So I waited till the end to see which one's, I was having most difficulty filling, and Edgar II was one of those. And Edgar II, um, uh, had he been a little bit older, he would have been king. I mean, he was king for about three weeks. You see, there's Edward the Confessor, then Harold II, and then, then came Edgar. And Edgar was 14 years old at the time. And uh, he had quite a strong claim to the throne and um when the time came the witan 
effectively the forerunner of the English Parliament, they recognised him as the king. But within about three weeks, and he actually had two goes at this, but the, the, the second one, within about three weeks, um, Harold Godwinson uh, lay claim to the throne as well. And his, he uh, managed to persuade the Witan that his claims were stronger. So they basically took it away from Edgar. Um, he hadn't been crowned. Because the, the key, what you learn from this book is the key thing is once you're crowned, then it's very difficult to get rid of you. But until you're crowned, and this is where Matilda went wrong, um, in that she she left it too late. She she was in France, whereas uh, Stephen of Blois was. He was actually in the country. So he managed to grab the throne before she could get it uh, and, and was crowned. And so she she still then tried to uh, get the throne, but never never succeeded in the end. But she could easily have been our first real queen. So Edgar II, yeah, after three weeks, that that was it. And he then led a fascinating life, um, doing all sorts of things to undermine uh, undermine the various monarchs. When William the Conqueror came, he 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 had a sort of love hate relationship with both William the Conqueror and William Rufus, William II, and would be in favour sometimes, and then lead some sort of army to try and depose them. So he he was a fascinating character. It was great fun researching him. But I'll, I'll tell you something. After I'd written the essay, and it was it's only about fifteen hundred words. Um, about six months after I'd written it, ChatGPT came along. So I typed into ChatGPT, write 1,500 words on Edgar II, and it was unbelievable how similar it was to what I'd written. And, <laughs> and obviously, it didn't have access to what I'd written. Um, but the sources that I used, presumably, I mean, they were obviously all public sources. I didn't, there was no great revelation that I discovered. But it was quite worrying because you think, well, what is the future of this sort of book when people could just literally write their essay by asking an AI bot to do it? That is um, scary. It really is. But I did ask an AI bot to do some things and it gave, I asked it three different, the same question in three different ways. And it gave me three different start dates for a Coronation Street actor. Which, oh, really? So, so I'm, you know, checking, there's a lot of checking that still needs to be God, done. How I has Coronation Street stuff. got two mentions two on the mentions. so far? <laughs> um, you mentioned that the, the the key is to get your crown on. So we obviously had we had quite a long gap in the end, maybe a suitable gap after the death of Her Majesty the Queen to the coronation in May. Um, how have you found, I guess, living through living through royal history this year? Well, let's start off with the day the Queen died because uh, I was. I, my radio show on LBC starts at seven o'clock in the evening and we've been getting bits of information throughout the day that all was not well with the Queen and um, I had one or two contacts who essentially confirmed that um, either she was about to die or already had and so the LBC newsroom was I mean we we literally We'd, we'd got plan. I mean, you have to prepare for these things. We had the obits ready and everything, but you can't preempt the official announcement. And um, we kind of knew, I suppose, when when we saw Hugh Edwards come on screen in a in a black tie, that all was not well. And 
it got to half past six and I was thinking, oh my God, it's me that's going to have to announce this. And I have a tendency to be quite sort of emotional on occasions like this. And I was thinking, I can't cry. I cannot cry. I mean, even saying it now, I, I sort of feel really emotional um, because it was what it's one of those things where we knew that the country was going to change at that moment. The country was going to change. It was, really was the end of an era. And Hugh Edwards then did announce it, I think, 6.33. And Andrew Marr was on air at the time on LBC. And Andrew announced it. And he, he his voice broke. And I think he was really kicking himself. And his producer want, rang me up and said, what was the reaction in the newsroom to that? And I said, God, I'm feeling really emotional now. Ev everyone thought, because it was so natural and it was reflecting, I think, what a lot of listeners were thinking and doing, that it was absolutely, I mean, I think they felt that people would have made fun of him for doing it. But Hugh Edwards, his voice cracked as well. And I, I think anyone, I mean, look, our job as radio presenters, particularly when there's a big news day, is not to emote but sometimes, you know, you just have to reflect what what the listeners are thinking. So I don't think there was a single person that thought Andrew was unprofessional in the in the way that he handled that at all. I mean, I've I've been on air when really terrible, terrible things have happened, and you sort of go into a rolling news mode. And I, I remember, do you remember when Lee Rigby was murdered outside Greenwich Barracks? I was on air just after that happened. And then two days later, uh, the MOD released a statement. My producer flashed it up on my screen, and I didn't read it before I actually read it out. And it got to the point where it said, um, and he had two children. And I just stopped. I couldn't continue. And this was for about probably only five seconds, but five seconds of radio silence sounds a lot longer than five seconds. And when I did continue, or I think at the end of the hour, I just said, I'm really, I want to apologize because that was totally unprofessional. Um, and then my text and tweet screen just went mental. And I got all of these messages saying, please don't apologize because that's what we were doing. So there, there are times when a bit of emotion, I think is okay. Um, I think the year that he's been on the throne, I think, has been very successful for him. Um, I've never been a massive Charles fan, uh, and I, I frankly couldn't really imagine him as king in some ways. But I think he's done a really, really good job in terms of what he's there to do. He hasn't... I can't think of anything that I could criticise him for. Th this recent visit to Kenya uh, that he's just come back from, I think, was in some ways a triumph. It was a very tricky tightrope to walk, given the demands for apologies for um, the, the, the torture of the Mama, etc. Um, and I thought he pulled it off very, very well indeed. Uh, so I, I, I would give him 9 out of 10 for the way he's um, handled the transition and actually being king.
High score, even if your partner decided well, to go chasing after Will Young back in the day <laughs> at high grade rather than and, the future. And the other thing I would say is that I expected there to be a really big debate to have started by now on the future of the monarchy. It hasn't happened. That The Republic movement has not expanded. You don't have anybody really trying to start a debate on the future of the monarchy. And I thought that would happen almost immediately. The Queen died, but it, it hasn't yet. I mean, maybe it will at some point, but it certainly hasn't yet. So I have a slight theory about that, which I didn't get to uh, to share in my last interview with an author, which was about um, after Elizabeth saving the monarchy and how they needed to sort of slightly reinvent themselves. So I have a theory that had Brexit not happened people would have had more appetite for change. But we've just gone through one massive seismic change and then there's it's it's not been as diff- as easy as was promised, I think. Well that's my that's my take on it. Um there's a, it was very divisive, had a big impact on the country, families fell out about it, you know, do, how much appetite is there? Are we actually better off? Even the people who voted for it, do they think we're better off? No, I brought the B word into the into the royal podcast, but I just I just feel like if do we do we have an appetite for another massive change quite so soon? I think there is something in that actually. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, well, it's not just Brexit. I mean, there've been all sorts of things that have happened over over the past sort of eight ten years. That I mean, it's been a very difficult period in, in all sorts of ways. Um, uh i better not enter into a debate on the b word because we might fall out (laughs) (laughs) but um i i think you are right that in some ways people want a period of stability and i always i'm going back to the prime ministers if you go back to 1945 you've i you have a charismatic prime minister followed by a boring one followed by a charismatic one followed by a boring one it's like the british people can't quite make up their minds on what kind of prime minister they want um and now of course we've gone from well we went from charismatic one boris johnson to well i would say a boring one in liz trust and we've got another boring one and we're probably about to get another boring one so so my theory is going to be completely shattered there um I mean, monarchs are very different. I mean, obviously, every monarch to a degree, um, I suppose, is charismatic, apart from Henry VI. I mean, there, there, there are there are some more boring ones than others. Um, but I, I think that your theory is probably bang on, and it's one I'm going to plagiarise and copy on my radio show now from time <laughs> to time. Oh, I may be available for future books. Should you issue them? So... Um, yeah, how do you, looking back at the past and the challenges that the monarchy has faced previously, how do you assess the sort of health and strength of of the monarchy today looking looking forward? I think it's in a stronger position now than people thought it would be a year after the Queen's death. Um, I, I don't think there are any threats to the monarchy at all. I think the monarchy, look, if you go right back to the beginning, that there are two words that you can associate with the monarchy, resilience and adaptability. And sometimes the adaptability comes a little bit more slowly than it might have done. But in the end, the monarchy has proved incredibly adaptable o- over the years. And, and j- at every point, more or less, obviously with the exception of Charles I, um, at every point, they've managed to save themselves 
because they're, 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 if, when you go through the book, there are probably five or six occasions when the monarchy could have fallen. Um, I mean, Edward VIII is another one where you, that it could have easily happened at that point, but it didn't. And uh, you can, I mean, the book explains why it didn't. It, it didn't fall at the time of the Russian Revolution, when in some ways you could uh, there could have been a popular uprising. Um, in the 19th century, there, there were a couple of occasions uh, when Victoria seemed to just lose complete interest in in, in things, and there was the, sort of the a few revolts in in her time. Wow. It never amounted to anything, but she then adapted uh, and recognised the dangers. And there were a lot, several other occasions going back hundreds of years where the monarchy was in danger, but at each time it survived. And I think it's quite difficult to imagine the circumstances now where the monarchy would cease to exist without the will of the people. And in the end, government's only governed by the consent of the people and the monarchy is only there by the consent of the people. And people say, well, younger generation, that they have different priorities. Maybe, but I think as people get older, that they see the value of the monarchy as providing the kind of stability that politicians, frankly, never can provide. The monarchy in Coronation Street is the stability that we all need. <laughs> Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure having a chat through history with you. I look forward to dipping in and out of more of those um, those chapters from your fantastic book. Thank you so much for sharing some of those stories with our listeners. And listeners, thank you for joining us. Hope you enjoyed that. And um, let us know on Instagram at Podsave. And until next time. Podsave the king. <laughs> <laughs>